to another episode of No Small Jobs. I'm your host, Paul Newen. Thanks for coming back and listening to this episode. Um, if you are curious about our other episodes, we have video previews on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, so make sure you find us at No Small Jobs Pod, the handle across all three social media sites. Uh, we also have a website, nosmalljobspod.com.au, where I share my reflections on each episode and whatever random inspiration comes to me at the time. I would like to really jump in uh, kind of quickly to this one because today's guest is uh, someone I met a number of years ago at a George R. R. Martin event. Um, but And at the time, we, we, uh, we clicked quite well and I actually didn't get much of a chance to talk to him about his job, which I was kind of desperate to find out about. So this is going to be really good for me. If it's good for you, Great. If it isn't, that's all right. I'm happy. Uh, so we have Robin. Robin is the principal of Paradigm Shift, which is a market and social research company. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Oh, oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Paul. So uh, tell us, what is your job exactly? Yeah, so uh, I run a market and social research business and uh, I guess market research people might think of it as sort of clipboards and white coats or something like that but really uh, the, the job is sort of like it's really I get to be a smarty pants really for uh, for a living um, and basically it's really around using you know group psychology sociology those sorts of disciplines and applying them and helping uh, uh, businesses and organizations make decisions essentially See, so it's really helping them by giving them information that they can use to make better decisions rather than what they think they should be doing. And that's the sort of the essence of it, really, uh, I guess, the business, yeah. I, I'm always fascinated by mm. people. I like the idea of understanding mm. how people function. And I, I guess yeah. like, let's, let's, let's do this chronologically. What, what got you into this field in the first place? Well, if you speak to most market and social researchers, they'll they'll almost always tell you they didn't they didn't plan to be in market. You don't sort of go, I when I grow up, I want to be a market researcher. <laughs> it just kind of doesn't work that way. And so uh, I'm similar in the sense that I started off. I did a food science degree. Uh, that's where I started off, mm. and I was completely ill-suited to it. I was terrible in the laboratory. I dropped glassware. I nearly killed myself by throwing chemicals down the sink. I, sh I was just awful at it, and I realized I was never going to have a career in, in food science. So I moved into what's called sensory science, which is the science of taste and smell and how we sense the world and understanding that. And um, I worked for CSIRO for many years on that, and I went to Japan to understand. Because at that time, you know, we have the t sweet, salty, sour, and bitter, the, the sort of the four key senses. Sure. Well, in Japan, they had a fifth one called umami, which is like a kind of a savory taste, and the rest of the world didn't believe that was a real thing. But we did this research, and part of that was to show, and there was other research, obviously, to show that actually it is it is another sense. So I was doing that research, and then I came back and decided to get into taste testing, that is taste testing food products and fragrances, and then from there I moved into general market research. So it was a very contorted, labyrinthine way of getting into market research, ultimately. But, well, let's... Oh, I have so many questions. So with, <laughs> starting with the food science, so what was your aspiration when, when, when you went and looked through yeah. your your university guide, what about food, what were you hoping food science would get you? I have no idea. I have no <laughs> idea, Paul. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had no insight into my own strengths and what I really respond to. And 
so I did food science because my parents, their background was engineering and and so they were sort of pushing me to do something and I thought, well, people are never going to stop eating, so food science sounds like a good idea. So it was more practical rather than passion per se. Exactly. And at the time their view was, well, you need something serious to fall back on. You might be doing these other things, you might be doing acting or art, but you need something serious to fall back on. And I remember they always used to say, uh, uh, John Cleese had a law degree before he, you know, was in 45. <laughs> <laughs> it was that kind of story. So I went into food science with absolutely, you know, my, my late teens with no idea really what I wanted to do or what my sort of core strengths were. were there, did you have some other creative aspirations like at the time? <laughs> Yeah, I did. I actually applied for NIDA. I was doing an awful lot of acting at the time. And in fact, the day I remember this, I was 18 I, I, and I didn't have any support. I didn't get any tutoring. I turned up on the day to sort of to try out for NIDA. There was like 300 people on the day I went in. Oh. And uh, we, did th we did two um, auditions and there was three of us left. And then we did another audition and they took one of the three of us and told, told me and the other guy to come back next year oh. so uh and i didn't i never went back <laughs> because <laughs> you know circumstances changed but i always wonder about that and wonder where that might have gone but um that was something i was very seriously interested in at the time i mean i i i'm currently in the midst of um yeah. of looking into creative pursuits myself and i i think I have to. I do admire people who commit to being in any sort of creative field because it does take yeah. quite a bit of resilience to be able yeah. to withstand the rejection and not lose faith in your own abilities, uh, yeah. and to kind of maintain maintain the perspective that yeah. this it is what you want to do and want to dedicate your time to. I was um, I was talking to a friend recently about yeah. what happens when you have when you get a a regular income and how difficult yeah. it is to be able to transition out of that to, to transition into a place of uncertainty. Um, and so it, it really highlighted for me that it's one of, it's, it is, I mean, it, it's, it's a big, it's quite a big step to be able to go essentially downgrade from an income perspective, but it also highlights the fact that you really want to be doing this kind of stuff early before, essentially before you know any better. <laughs> before, yeah. Before yeah. You yeah. Know what it's like to, <laughs> to not be living paycheck to paycheck and not, be yeah. living in, in uncertainty. It's it's quite it's quite difficult. I I'm again I'm I'm quite impressed by people who can withstand that kind of uh, anxiety. I I completely agree. It does take a huge amount of maturity and resilience at a relatively young age, and I'm not sure that I had that at that time. Um, I'm lucky though because the job I do now I I can very much channel that performance because I'm on my feet two or three hours at a time doing debriefs and presenting, and so a lot of those skills that I learnt and this is the thing I've learnt because another hobby that I had for a while I was a lifeline counsellor for a number of years, mm. which really honed my listening skills. Again, an essential skill if you're going to be a market and social researcher. So even if you don't necessarily use the, those those skills from a career perspective, like you say, to generate a paycheck, I think that people who excel in whatever career they have are using skills from other disciplines you know, that they bring to the table rather than somebody who's been very narrowly constrained within a particular you know, path, if you like. So, mm. and it also, 
highlight. I mean, your the, your career path, and I do want to go back to the sensory science thing sure, that fascinates sure. me as well. But your career path also highlights the fact that um, you life experience plays a really great value uh, in in building your career, but also understanding yourself. And so mm-hmm. it seems that in the life experience that you've gained seems incidental as you said you mm. you had you had some creative aspirations but you you found you tried to find something to fall back on that was a little bit more uh, traditional mm. let's say um and incidentally incidentally all these things started coming up and you've learned from them and built from them and discovered things about yourself and so like it really highlights the value of just going out there and yes. just doing things and figuring it out and and also being okay with getting it wrong. Like yes. if you if you choose something just like this isn't for me, it's you haven't wasted time. You've just crossed no. something off the list and that's okay because it yes. it then gives you better knowledge about what else there could be or it helps you narrow your focus down a bit more, you know? Yes, ex- exactly. None of us particularly in the earlier parts of her career can absolutely know. I mean, some people, I guess, are lucky enough to know exactly what they want to do and be really clear. I was never like that, and I didn't have the insights to really know. Uh, And so, like you say, making mistakes, dropping glassware in laboratories, Mm. those sorts of things made me realize I was never going to be a detail-oriented person who was very much about, you know, sort of, numbers and sort of ch- charting things that was never the way my brain I could do it but the effort required was just incredibly hard for me so uh, those mistakes helped me realize I was much more of a conceptual thinker than a, a sort of a think a detailed oriented person like that for example yeah so let, let's let's abruptly segue back into sensory <laughs> yeah. science firstly how did you discover it well, because part of the food science course was sensory science, and essentially that was uh, understand. It was taste testing and understanding because part of food is how it's perceived and insights. But also from an industry perspective, none of the foods we buy at the supermarket haven't. They've all been taste tested. They've all been optimized in some way, um, and so. I realized that this was a part of science which wasn't about hard numbers and physics and chemistry, but was about the human brain, how we interpret things, how our senses sometimes deceive us in the way that we look at things, how we quantify that, and how we sort of, it was the start for me of understanding that human behavior and how complex human behavior is, and and in some ways how predictable human behavior is, was really fascinating for me. So. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Because that, that again, is really fascinating to me. Are there any patterns or was there any particular facts that you learned or can remember from that time that really stuck out to you? Yes. So the thing I always think about is that we are all different in the same way, Paul. And and that really kind of sums it up. We we are all unique, but actually a lot of the ways we behave really highly predictable at the same time. So there's this real paradox in sociology and psychology that we believe we're all individuals and we are and we all have our unique way of doing things but actually uh, when you take human beings as a group we behave in very predictable ways Uh, and so there's a really fascinating paradox there between the two and I'm just constantly fascinated by human behavior and uh, and how uh, how complex it is, 
yet at the same time there are aspects of it and we all do it we don't have insights often into our own behavior how we can deceive ourselves or be deceived so very easily as well so uh, and our senses are a good example of that we think our senses are infallible and they're actually that's just not true they're incredibly um, you know there's nothing objective about them at all and we can easily all of us be um, uh, waylaid by our senses uh, at any time were there were there anything was there anything you learned from your experience in sensory science that changed the way you lived your life or the way you perceived yourself i i suppose I suppose I grew up in an idea that there's an objective world and that you know if you use the right tools and the right approaches you can understand that world objectively and uh, and and that's you know it, it's kind of this sort of very objective view and uh, I realized that doing sensory science is that actually that's just not the case <laughs> and that that, uh, that that I have to be much more skeptical so I suppose the thing I developed was a skepticism not only of my own thoughts, processes and what I thought was going on but also what other people say. I hear things that people say all the time and they really do believe them but they're actually not true. I mean a good example of one that I hear all the time in groups is advertising doesn't work on me. Mm -hmm. People will say that they fundamentally believe advertising has no impact and it's just not true. Uh, we think, we'd like to think that it doesn't, but it actually does, and that's why people spend literally millions and billions of dollars on advertising because it actually does work. <laughs> I mean, not to give away any ticks or uh, tricks or tips, but when when people do say that, does, yeah. what does that tell you about them? Well, it, it tells me what uh, what we're all like is we have belief we have a belief that we're in control of our lives and that we we know what's going on and we're we're, we're reasonably. Um, you know that we're reasonably smart. So the idea that perhaps we're more influenced than we than, than we would like to think is not something that a lot of us uh, want to think about. But it's really interesting because there's there is a technique you can use to actually get around this, and it's called projection, which is instead of asking somebody directly, "Does advertising work on you?" You ask them about other people. Now, a classic example of this, and Paul, maybe you would relate to this, and I don't know. Someone told me about. Uh, I remember hearing about this study, but asking um, doctors about influences on them from pharmaceutical companies and things like that, they'll often, doctors will say, no, they have no influence on me. But then when they ask them about, well, what about other doctors? Are you concerned about them being influenced? They'll say, well, yes, I am concerned about them being influenced. <laughs> and that's a classic projection. Uh, it's like, not me, but others. I'm worried about them, if you see what I mean. I, I do. Uh, I, I will admit to the fact that while direct advertising and tend to be kind of cynical about a yes. lot of what a lot of the choices I make do tend to be experiential and so yes. and and that that's almost incidental advertising it's sort of the sense yes. that okay well this other patient uses product once before it seemed to work well for them um, so therefore I will use that product ongoing and yeah. or like you know i'll still do my due diligence and the research but ultimately that was the trigger point the trigger point yeah. wasn't the fact that i necessarily actively sought out this is the best thing as much as i try to most of the time um yeah. but it, it it it's a way to just yeah trigger something in my brain to say okay it's time to review this is this something that's worth doing um yes. i i don't 
Yeah, it's I I I don't know if I necessarily project. I'm trying to think. I might be doing it um unconsciously and, and just <laughs> and not realize it. But would I say would I be the kind of person who says advertising doesn't work on me? Maybe I I find direct appeals doesn't work on me. Like when drug mm. reps come to a to a lunch and they tell me about their product, my walls are, are yes. so far up and so thick. And yes. I, um I will I, I essentially am, am just eating the food and, and blocking them out. Um, but it doesn't yes. necessarily mean they don't have an impact. It just means I think consciously <laughs> it's just I'm trying not to let it in. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, sorry. Sensory science is still kind of brilliant. So, sensory mm. science is—is is it kind of science in? Is it still with sensory science? Is it more about the mm. sociology as well, or is it actually a science? Like, is it a yes. way? Okay. It, so, it is. A, it is a science. It's the science is called psychophysics, and it literally, it, this is from the nineteenth century. Is this idea that if you hold, if you give someone a weight of 100 grams in one hand and a weight of 200 grams in their other hand, people see one as twice as heavy as the other. And how much, if you go from 100 grams to 101 grams, do people notice the difference? So there was all this research done in the 19th century around how our senses work, how can we tell just noticeable differences? How do you actually mathematically chart that kind of thing? Because it's not like a weight scale. And so a whole body of work created around that. Uh, and then the biggest challenge has always been the sense of smell because it's, it's very difficult. Even today, we really don't know how we smell. It's very, very complicated. It's actually our most primitive sense. So if you think about some single, you know, very simple organism in the oceans millions and millions of years ago with two little stalks on top of its body sensing chemicals in the ocean, that became our noses through evolution. It's hardwired to our most primitive parts of our brain, and that's why smells are so like they can really trigger very deep memories and emotions is because they are it's our most most fundamental sense but we really don't understand I mean we do understand some aspects of it but it's incredibly complex so a lot of the research has been around that Mm. Which obviously has a has an impact on food sciences and and, you know the food industry I would imagine Yes, it, it, it has. And you, you may you know, notice over time, food companies have gotten better at creating flavors and things that are really great. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Really nice. Um, and, and, you know, on one level, that's great. But on another level, it, it is challenging, of course. But, um, it's, uh, but it's interesting because one of the classic uh, case studies in sensory science of what not to do is the new Coke debacle which is back in the 80s, uh, where they did some blind, ta- blind taste tests and found that they had this new, they were worried about Pepsi, so they made this new formulation and then they blind tested against current Coke and they, uh, people said they preferred the new formulation, so they brought out new Coke and it was a horrible disaster, you know, people were, were up in arms. And the reason is, is because we actually get used to a particular taste and so when you change it, you don't actually like it, even though on in, on a blind test you might like it. When your favorite brand suddenly changes its flavor, it's terrible. Another classic case study is uh, in the UK, one of the water um, utilities reduced the amount of, um, uh, you know, they, they put chlorine in the water to, to, to you know, 
chlorinate it. They reduced the amount of chlorine because they thought it would improve the, you know, how it tasted. And again, people were up in arms. What have you done to our water? It tastes <laughs> terrible. So another thing is we get habituated to particular flavors and tastes and we prefer them that way. We don't want them to change um, as well. Uh, so that shows it's not just an objective, oh, this is better than this. It's, you know, what we prefer is often what we're used to. And I would argue, so having, having worked in, in mental health for quite some time, I would mm. argue that is a natural human trait to resist change, to be, yes. to, to be or not just resist, but to at least be wary of change. And when given yes. the choice to change or not change, we'll often choose to not change, irrespective of whether or not it's the logical thing to do. Yes. Um, yes. Because it's easier. Yes. It, is, it is simpler. Uh, yeah, habituation is, is, um, is a very common feature. And that can really, in a health field that can be really frustrating it can be really frustrating because when you try to convince someone of something that you're quite familiar with if you you have the knowledge and you have the expertise and you know that certain things need to change and you ask them well you tell them why they should change it's not enough to simply say the facts are you have to give it you have to word it or structure it in such a way that in, it's almost like they have to convince themselves that the change becomes necessary. Um, otherwise, yeah. the, people will choose stagnation up to the point yeah. when they have no choice but to change. Yes, and and a lot, of, and of course, we think people are using their rational brains, but we know we actually know that a lot of decision making is anchored in emotion. So our emotions actually are a very important part of our decision making process. We don't think of it that way, but actually. Um, without our emotions, we couldn't make decisions. And the reason we know that is um, is that people who um, have suffered strokes or brain injuries where their emotional center of their brains has, has been affected have great difficulty making very simple decisions like, should I choose a pen or a pencil to write on, on a piece of paper? So we know our emotions are very uh, integral to our... And so fear, relief comfort, these sorts of emotions are incredibly powerful in making decisions and that's how we've evolved. We've evolved that way. And so what I would say is that rational you know, requests or, or using rational reasons to try to convince people about things, which comes back to advertising, rarely works. You have to kind of, people have to feel feel some kind of emotional shift if they are going to make decisions or change things. Uh, and that's something I've really learned over my career is that actually rationally, what rationally people say or using rational things to make decisions are rarely useful or not useful, but are rarely, rarely work because unless we ask, unless you connect emotionally, uh, people, like you say, are very resistant to change. As part of your work, do you have much influence in in the way that, Actually, no, hold on. Let, sorry, that, that, that's a question yeah. for a few steps down. Let what what does your research actually do? Like, how does it help companies or the people that hire yeah. you? Yeah. So we have something called insights. So this is, I mean, insights is a general word, but it's a very it's it has a very clear meaning in market research. And insights are, and it sounds a bit creepy in a way, but basically, insights are a fundamental human um, truth which can be used to change people's behavior or make money, right? <laughs> so basically, so what we're trying to do is get insights. 
Uh, and so the work we do, whether it's through surveys or through interviews, is to find these insights. And then once you have these insights, then what what I do is we go to we go you know present to the senior management and say these are the insights, these are the findings. Therefore, if you want to, you know, if you want more donors to don donate to your charity, if you want to make more money, if you want to do this, if you want to change people's behaviour, you need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to communicate. X, Y, and Z. You need to create these products, and underpinning all of that is this insight, right? And so that's really what is about. The insights are very valuable, and that's essentially what people are paying me for is to find those because they're not readily apparent. If they were, then then there wouldn't be a market research industry. So, and so with um, I guess on that, you know. And with advertising particularly, there is it is a difficult line to draw. Advertising seems yeah. to be this mix of creative and psychological yeah. and social and, and really there's there's some objective goals there that all that are all trying to marry together and they don't mm. necessarily coalesce. Do you do you provide insight about, you know, how much emotion to try and invoke? Or is emotion always something that you suggest people invoke? Well, the insights are nearly always partly about emotion. So what, and I work with advertising agencies and creative people as well a lot, um, because for them, having those insights is incredibly valuable. And typically, it's a Maslow, it's a Maslow kind of hierarchy if that makes sense. So you know, you've got fundamental needs at the bottom of the at bottom of the triangle, but ultimately the insights are going to be anchored to the higher order needs. The need, you know, the need for togetherness, the need for relief, the need for uh, status, for example. So you, you know, a lot of a, 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 a lot of um, a lot of that is driving those higher order needs, which are you know based on a whole lot of other things which sit below them. So it's really about understanding how those emotions ladder through from the basic through to these higher order needs, which are much more powerful in that way. And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to really uncover and understand that. And that's what I meant before about you know everybody's different in the same way because it is. You know, if you spend enough time talking to people about a certain aspect of the world, you can get at what is really driving or motivating their behavior in terms of those insights. And once you know that, once you've nailed that, that means you can then create whatever it is you need to create from a product or a communication or whatever it is uh, to actually get an outcome which you're looking for and you're much more likely to succeed in that way. Are there any are there any insights that you've found seem to be fairly universal that you'd almost kind of be like, here is a basic guidebook to you to all your companies out here, and then all the other specific stuff comes out from that? Well, I suppose there's a whole there's a whole body of work called motivational research. And uh, there's there is like a fundamental uh, two axes, if you like, that stem from that. Actually, the story of where motivational research comes from is a pretty, pretty interesting story. A guy called Ernest Dichter, who was a Freudian psychoanalyst, left, um, I think, Austria or Germany after the Second World War and ended up at Madison Avenue in the 19th, you know, during the Mad Men era. Mm -hmm. And he did something revolutionary. He was working for tobacco companies and people like that, and he would literally lay people on the couch and psychoanalyze them. 
And he's the father of motivational research because his view was unless you understand people psychoanalytically, you can't hope to change them. And one of his most successful pieces of research, which sounds terrible now, but he took a brand that was kind of defunct and he transformed it into the Malbros brand. Oh and the way he did that was he said, um, there's all these men who've come back from the Second World War. They're looking for a sense of belonging and status that they no longer have. If we take this Malbro, you can imagine him in his sort of Freudian sort of German accent sort of talking about this to appetite. If we change the packaging so there's a stripe on it, like a sergeant stripe, yeah. and masculinize the color so they can wear it in their top pocket like they're wearing an insignia. And he said the knight is the symbol of, you know, a symbol of status and symbol of kind of no nobility. But America doesn't have that. The cowboy is the closest. So we'll use, you know, use the cowboy. So he took those insights, those fundamental insights, uh, and used them to create Marlboro brand or work with the advertising agency to do that. And essentially the axes is, is there's two axes really, and one is a sense of belonging or a sense of individual status is one core axis. People are motivated by either the need, what we call affiliation, to belong together, and a good example of that is Victoria Bitter. That is a sense of belonging, togetherness, group, you know, we're all mates together. Mm. Uh, and the other end of the scale is status. So like Peroni as a beer brand, I guess, would be more. <laughs> it's not about affiliation. It's about standing out and displaying your status. And the other axis is about what we call control versus relief. And that is when you're trying to trying to uh, kind of solve a problem or you're trying, you have anxiety about something, you either do it by controlling it, trying to control yourself and control the world, or you do it by releasing yourself from the anxiety and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go and walk away from it, if you like. And so uh, you get these four broad uh, classes of, of motivation, either uh, affiliation, togetherness, or individuality, and then control or relief or release. And essentially, most brands and categories and aspects of life can be kind of broken down into those kind of basic axes. And then, of course, the details then come from that. Do you does that also then apply in the in, in this age of social media? Do you use your yeah. research to comment on that? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. If anything, what social media has done is amplify those things to an even greater degree and make them more obvious than they perhaps were in the past. Um, so they, those fundamental, our fundamental drivers and motivations have changed. It's just the way that we express them and communicate them has just changed. That's all. Yeah. It, it, I, one of the phenomena that that I think shows my age is um, mm. social media influencers. They they baffle me completely. <laughs> um, but the way the way you've just explained it actually yeah. makes a lot of sense because mm. what what if if i if i understand it correctly and please you know explain mm. through the lens of of your ex expertise here what a social media influencer does is it creates the sense of belonging so it's sort of this idea yeah. that you are connected and part of a group of people who are like-minded and have similar interests but also somehow manages to skirt the skirt the advertising trap which is that it doesn't seem like advertising so you don't you don't you, you know you feel you don't feel like you're you're being advertised to, uh, but then yep. it's still managing to meet that control and relief thing is that there is still a problem that they're to some degree addressing. Um, yep. And they're just doing it in a way that seems 
almost like you're like in inverted commas natural like you're just kind of a part of their lives when the whole thing is completely artificial <laughs> yeah i think i think that's a that's a great summary what i would say is that if i was doing research into social media influences i could probably separate them out into four different segments of different types of social media influences there would be those who are about, who are all about togetherness and creating a community and there would be others which were about status, you know what I mean, and about mm. kind of uh, helping some people feel that they've got greater status or, great, you know, so their social status, they can then use the information that they gather from that social media to talk to others and feel like they're socially superior. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And then you would have those who are about control and numbers and rationality versus those who are more emotionally driven in the way that they communicate their information, which is your control and release. So you could literally, you could literally segment out all social media influences into those four broad buckets. Now there would be probably subgroups within that, but yeah, you, once you know this axis, you can pretty much apply it to anything, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, so, as, fun, it's as, so fundamental in, in, in that way. And, uh, it really is at the heart of the motivation as to why people are drawn or repelled by particular uh, things. So yeah, I um I have a natural tendency to to want to understand how things work. Uh, mm. The human mind is always one of the things that I think we'll just never completely understand, but is always in like limitlessly fascinating. Um, <laughs> but one of uh, so one of my previous guests is uh, is a full time gamer. So he he yeah. plays a video. He plays Escape from Tarkov, and he um he posts it up posts up videos, and you know he'll have mm. ninety. He's recently had ninety thousand people live watch a live stream wow. of his. And one wow. of the things he said was that. If you go into it trying to make money, it comes yep. across as artificial and becomes really obvious and um, yeah. and it, it, it in general doesn't work. Whereas his approach has been, again, to, to, to co-op this term, has been more natural, which is that he came into mm. it largely because he, he just enjoyed it and he wanted to make some friends. Um, and I kind of wonder sometimes, you know, to... In order to be successful at promoting yourself, regardless mm. of whether you're a company or an individual, I always wonder, is there a formula? Like, you know, people will give all, all these pieces of advice and and I, can't, I, have to th- I have to think that has, at least some of it has to be luck, right? Like, is there, yeah. is, is your work trying to essentially take the luck out of it or do you, do you have yeah. to kind of accept that luck is part of it? Yeah, so luck and chaos, uh, there's, there's a whole lot of things you can't control. But I guess the difference is is if you took if you took two individuals or two organizations and they made decisions and one made those decisions purely on gut feel and you know their own experience versus an organization that had their gut feel and their own experience but actually themselves or hired somebody like me to go out and sort of understand more about how things tick then their likelihood of making decisions which were had good outcomes are much greater. Do you know what I mean? So it's about reducing the odds of making bad decisions. There's sometimes this assumption that market research or those sorts of things, there's two kind of myths. One, it's sort of manipulating people into doing things they don't want to do. You know, you're, you're helping companies manipulate people, which just doesn't make sense. But the second piece is that it's somehow telling organizations what to do. I don't tell organizations what to do. I help them to make better decisions. Now, 
are they ever going to be 100%? You can't be 100% sure of anything. You're trying to reduce the risk. It's ultimately about risk reduction and risk management that someone's going to make a poor decision because you've done the research. So at the very least, if things don't work out, you can say, well, we did the research. We did as much as we can. Where the danger can be is if organizations or people rely on the research to make their, the decision for them. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So they abrogate their responsibility to the research. That is not what research is meant to do. It is meant to reduce the risk of your decision making, not to make the decisions for you. Yeah. And so on that, you know, what is, what is either a key or a common piece of advice you give to people once you've given them the data? And mm. have you... Like, or, Let's ask it a different way. Have you noticed a pattern as to when people seem to succeed better when utilizing your your work? Yeah. So the paradox is, if you give people um, if you give people um, very positive results that kind of you know it kind of um, reinforces what they already know, they love it. Uh, they think it's the best thing ever. Paradoxically, if you actually give them information which uh, is contrary to what um, they expected. Um, they can often be quite hostile about that, even though that's probably more valuable in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's probably more valuable. So rationally, you would think that actually they're getting their value for money if I come back and go, well, actually, if you make these decisions, that could be quite risky because of these reasons. But actually, that's when you often get the most hostility and pushback. Um, I'm, I'm generalizing here, of, of course. course. There is a lot of people who are able to bypass their kind of their, their their initial response and make really good decisions, and I work with a lot of people like that. But it is interesting that often it's the it's the more challenging research that often can have the most pushback, particularly in very political organizations where there's different factions sort of vying, where it can really get quite difficult. And so on that, what do you think has been your most challenging, uh, the challenging part of your job or a challenging incident? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's probably been those circumstances because I present to senior management, right? And you'll have an organization where, and I'll be on my feet for two or three hours. Now, so I'm on my feet for two or three hours. I've got, I've got this presentation of information. So the, first of all, I'm trying to build a narrative to tell them a story. The information I'm giving them has to be 100% correct, particularly if it's quantitative. There can't be any errors in it. I'm trying to communicate that in real time. And often if the information is not what they expected, there can be quite significant pushback from the audience. It can really lead to a very, very challenging situation where you're being, you're being publicly challenged on the very things you're trying to present. Um, in that way, so that's probably the most challenging aspects is under those circumstances. Yeah. And so, what keeps you in this industry? What is it about this job that you love? Oh, it's just like you say, the hu human behavior is so complex. But the thing I love, like I think, you know, what's a normal day? There's no such thing for me as a normal day because because I, I work for so many different clients, everyone from uh, you know packaged goods companies to charities to uh, automotive to you name it. So in literally in the space of half a day, I can go from I don't know talking about a new potential toothpaste flavor or something to literally the next hour talking about how a charity might energize its base around disability services to literally talking to men about how they like to ride their motorcycles all in half a day. Mm. Like literally 
it's just one thing, you know, and it's never the same thing. It's always changing and challenging because, uh, you know, human behavior is so complex. So that's what I really love about the job that I do. I feel very lucky because it, it, it's just so very different and changing all the time. Do you see yourself doing this job forever? Well, that's the other good thing about it. Because I'm not constrained physically, even even locationally, it, there's no reason why I can't keep doing this job uh, as long as I want to. I mean, I might dial it back at some stage, but there's no reason why I can't keep keep doing this for as long as I want. That's the other thing. It's it because it's it, it's about ideas and information. It's not constrained by age at all uh, in any way. I um, I actually really want to go back to the sensory science thing. So you yeah. said you went to Japan. So how did that opportunity yeah. come up? Well, CSIRO back in 1990 had something called the Japan Project, and Japan was a focus of exports at the time. And so the CSIRO got a big grant to um, really study Japanese taste preferences in order to help the food industry in particular um, to better market uh, products to Japan. So it's a little bit like what's happening with China now. It was Japan back then. And so I was ensconced in a university in, uh, with CSIRO but in Japan and we were doing taste research and helping organizations as well. So organizations would send us product over and we would test them with Japanese people and get their feedback. There was these myths around our oh, Japanese people don't use, you know, you get people to rate rate on sensory scales, how much do you like this and how sweet and so there were these myths that maybe Japanese people wouldn't rate them the same way as Australians and all this carry on. So part of it was also just debunking some of those myths uh, that somehow, um, you know, that, that that was the case. It wasn't the case that used that used used these scales exactly the same way. So it was a real it was a real kind of, kind of combined push to do that at that time. And then how did that evolve into a job into market research or into a, a, an idea yeah. to get into the market research field? Well, um, I, there was no future for me at CSIRO, uh, not really unless I did a PhD. It just felt like as a scientist and as a public scientist, I couldn't see, and this, you know, I was 22, I couldn't see a future for me that, that was going to go anywhere very fast. Uh, and there was this opportunity. My um, my university, uh, one of the university academics I knew from from food science, had set up her own taste testing company using sensory science. It was much better paid, and also I could see a career path. So I left CSIRO and joined that and started doing taste testing research. That was interesting, but. And from there, it's that's like a subpart of general market research. So then I got into to advertising research and um, segmentations, as we've been talking about, and new product testing, uh, you name it, sort of the whole gamut of, of market and social you know, focus groups and, and depth interviews and the whole lot. Uh What's your opinion on these uh, apps and websites that that sort of promote themselves as paying for surveys? Mm. Yeah, so this so actually it's a great way to actually make a bit of money, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest. Because what we do is when we do surveys, they're all online and they use online panels. There's about five or six online panels in Australia, and literally the people who 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 fill out the surveys they get paid. There's different incentives 
we don't do that, we outsource that. But actually it's a great way for people to earn extra money and things just filling out surveys. Why not? Um, it's actually, uh, you know, it's, it's not much t of your time and it's actually a really interesting way to find out, you know, you get to, so, you know, see things and test things and evaluate things that might end up in the market anyway. So, um, yeah, there, there, there's about five, like I said, about five or six um, online panels of consumers that uh, that exist in Australia to do just that, yeah. And do you, do you feel that there is any greater weight to surveys versus face-to-face uh, -face interviews? Yeah, they're, they're different things. So if you think of them, one is more... Um, so when someone fills out a survey and they tick boxes and do things like that, that tells you something about... You know, if you do enough people, you do a thousand people. Uh, a bit like a poll, right? If you do a poll on people's, you know, how they're going to vote, it tells you how they're going to vote. It doesn't tell you why, right? If you want to know why, you actually have to sit down with people and talk to them. So they really go hand in hand because one tells you something about um, why people uh, are doing the things they're doing, but you need large numbers of people to fill out a survey to predict what actually is going to happen, if you see what I mean. Hmm. So they both do different things. They have different roles within research. Uh, but often you'll see, for example, I see this in newspapers all the time. We've run these polls, you know, and people are saying this, and they're trying to extrapolate from polls how people are going to behave in large numbers, and you can't do that. That's not, that's not what focus groups are for. Focus groups are to tell you what the dynamics are that sit underneath, but they can't tell you, they can't predict how people are going to behave ultimately, if you see what I mean. So they play very different roles. Did you did you do any other extra training through your career into things like like psychology, or was it all still very uh, the, the the sort of study that you did was still mm. more geared towards marketing specifically? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the people who do what I do have done psychology or sociology backgrounds. They're good good training for market research. I didn't. I mean, I. I, I kind of picked up the applied methodologies as I went along. I'm lucky in the sense because a lot of people who are in market research don't have the science background that I have, and so that gives me some, some um, benefits in the way that I design research and structure it, that they don't necessarily have those tools. So I can build things from the ground up and, and know that they're, they're sort of scientifically sound, I guess. But yeah, sort of study in psychology and sociology are particularly helpful and useful, um, you know, in, in market research. And so for, for anyone who, yeah. who is inspired by this conversation, do you have any bits of advice about how you to go about in, uh, getting into this industry or what to be aware of before going into this industry? I think a couple of things. First of all, universities are much better designed to help people get into market research. There's much the courses are much more developed. So you can actually choose to do market research as part of a marketing degree or something like that. The other thing is, the other advice is that there's actually a bit of a, a skill shortage in market research because it's not well known. And so actually it's it's actually a really, really good career to have because there's a lot of opportunity in it and it's only growing. It's not getting smaller, it's getting bigger because our need to understand people's behavior is getting greater. So, um, 
yeah, I, I, I think the main thing is is that people just don't consider it as a career. I think that's the thing. They think of marketing, they think of advertising, they think of, you know, the, the sort of the sister disciplines, PR, advertising, uh, particularly, they think of, um, but they don't necessarily think of, um, and media is the other one, but they don't think of market research. Or they have very strange views that it's all about clipboards and white coats and sort of ticking boxes, and it's not like that at all. It's, I don't do any of that, so... Is there, is there anything that you would have done differently in your career now that you've had, you know been in the industry for a while? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we, we talked about it at the beginning, which was if only I'd had more of an insight into my own strengths back when I was in my teen, late teens and early 20s and been able to think about that think that through, you know, being a conceptual thinker, being interested in, I should have known, when I was in first year food science, I got the sociology textbook, Introduction to Sociology, mm. and I read the whole thing from cover to cover, because <laughs> it was so fascinating, you know, communist systems, why they work, why this and that, you know, I just loved all that stuff, and it should have been, you know, it should have dawned on me that that's really what I was interested in, was that, was sort of, so, you know, sociology and psychology, but I didn't, so, so that's the regret that I had, that it took me so long to get to where I was because I really didn't have any insight into my own interests and strengths like I perhaps wish I had. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. But thank you, Robin. That was a really brilliant conversation. And I'm, I'm sure no more worries. questions will come up afterwards. Um, so if you like what you heard, please check out our previous episodes. They're all uh, as in-depth and fascinating as this one has been. Uh, check out our website, nosmalljobspod.com.au or find our, uh, our podcast on wherever you get good podcasts. That's Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Podcast Addict. Uh, thanks for listening. And remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.